This is Wyman and Bob on Seattle Sports, powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Streaming live on the Seattle Sports app and at seattlesports.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave Wyman and Bob Stelton. Got our guy, El Hombre, Michael Bradley, joining us at 5 o'clock today as he does every Tuesday. Feels like Monday since we had Monday off. But it's Tuesday, Dave, in case you were wondering. I didn't know uh, we had yesterday <laughs> off until like 11 o'clock. Yesterday. Oh, really? You got yeah. up and got prepared and said, hey, yeah, I was nobody planned at, anything. There's no email. I know. I was looking through things, <laughs> and I got a couple of uh, stories together, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Nothing's <laughs> yeah, – the sheet's blank. I was curious if I was going to get a text. And you figured it out on your own, so I'm proud of you. Yes, I did. <laughs> All you had to That's do was say National I'm Holiday Bonneville. I'm proud Throw of you. Throw that in the internet machine. Well, I, I had legit, you weren't here on Friday, so I did have legitimate curiosity. Like, wait, does Dave know? Maybe not, because it's not the most obvious holiday to take off. So Yeah, exactly. Well, we and tend so, to work most of right. them. Yeah. And so I texted Kyle instead of Mike, because I yeah. knew Kyle wouldn't be an ass about it. <laughs> I would not. Oh, and I would sure. not be, because you've done it before. And I've said, no, we have today off. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> See, he's, he's proud of he you, He just Dave. made my case. He's proud of you, though. <laughs> I'm uh, helpful. I'm trying to help you out. <laughs> oh, All right. Well, fine. it is a Tuesday. Feels like Monday, but it's a Tuesday. El Hombre will be with us at 5 o'clock. Andrew Brandt will be with us at 4. We'll talk to him about some of the salary cap issues facing the Seahawks. He's a former Packers VP of Player Finance. Also writes for Monday Morning Quarterback and hosts the Business of Sports podcast. So he knows a thing or two about the business of the NFL and loopholes in the salary cap and all that good stuff. Uh, so we'll talk to him coming up at 4.30. But uh, Ryan Grubb, new offensive coordinator of your Seattle Seahawks, as we all are aware at this point. He was on with Bump and Stacy today and hit a few different things. Now, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, making that jump from the college game to the NFL game. Typically, those guys will assume a position coach, you know, duty for a while. Maybe a couple of positions. He was the quarterback's coach or wide receiver's coach, and then he's assistant offensive coordinator, and then he becomes the O.C., well, he just went straight from uh, college to OC at the NFL level. And he and he talked about it here, just talking about the similarities and key differences between college and the NFL. There's parts that do, and there's certainly parts that I think with the value in possessions and the number of times that you actually get the football in the NFL, there, there's a, I don't want to say that you're wasteful in college with the number of plays that you can run and, and that you're frivolous, but to some point, some teams are and have had even success at the college level of just running plays to run plays. I think you have to be a lot more focused and a lot more dutiful with your time and, and the amount of energy you put into each concept and how many snaps you're actually going to get in a game. You know, and, and that's where I think the number of possessions and how you get limited in that basis is so important in the NFL. So that's where you see the possession control and things like that that are so critical in the NFL. Well, and also you get the guys full-time and it's their job and they don't have homework and they don't have other things. Like this is serious and you get much more time. He talked about the the snaps, the number of snaps, but also, you know, just the uh, the chance to get these guys. I mean, I, I would think that would, of course, he hasn't had really a taste of what the NFL is, is like, but I can imagine going from the NFL to college, that being a really rough transition just because, you know, and I think for most players, I know when I was... When I played football uh, in college, like I took the least number of of uh, classes that you could take during the fall, right? So, that, so you, you could know, focus could, as much as you could yeah. on football. 
my my fifth year senior year i think i had like one class was for five credits or something like that so totally you know you got to plan it that way but i mean for for the coaches it's and for these guys also it's just a it's a year-round thing you know and i know that College football is starting to become more like the NFL, just, you know, the the whole transfer portal and the NIL and all that. But still the time part of it, I think, is really going to be key for him, just getting getting a chance to sit down with, with guys all day long and, and talk about football. Well, interesting to hear him talk about at the college level how you could not waste plays, but, you know, they're, they're so precious at the NFL level. There is no playoff or hey let's try this here there's no there's no frivolous play it sounds like at the college level you could do that and as he said have success obviously the opponents vary at the college level you've got especially in a big time program you're often opening the season with the sisters of the poor from down the street and you know if you're out there in the sec and you're florida beating up on jacksonville state 73 to 14 you know games like that you can you can get away with you know, hey, we got we got a whole book of plays I want to try here. NFL, no, no, no. Every every team, even if their record isn't great, they can come out there and kick your butt. Right. Yeah, and you look at what what they they were. Um, this is uh, next next year's. Uh, they've already got next year's schedule up. But if you look at um, who they played and some of the preseason games, and that's probably you know more what he's talking about. You played Boise, Tulsa. Um, they did play. They played Michigan State, but still, yeah, you you can early on go. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if they're gonna fall for this play right here, and if it doesn't work, we'll pick it up. You know, somewhere else. It's just mm-hmm. so much more competitive in the NFL and about the play calling. I never thought about that. It was interesting hearing that. I heard this clip earlier, just because um, you know that that's not something that you really think about. That that would be a difference going coming from college to the NFL, and I think it's it's interesting. The was, one thing, was that never emphasized when you were. What, like your rookie year, do your, your coaches never say anything like, listen, man, every one of these mean the world or this isn't college anymore, kid. You can't you can't take any place off. I could just feel that being a mantra from an old school coach. Yeah. Well, it was implied, yeah. basically. Why, and then, and I, I kind of knew it, you know, when uh, the guy who recruited me or kind of, you know, checked me out at, at Stanford was Rusty Tillman. And then, you know. Like, yeah, I, I got you here, everything, you know, go get him. And then after the first kickoff that I ran down on that, he screamed at me in front of the entire team and said that his grandmother could cover kicks <laughs> better than I could. Yeah, but his grandma was really fast. <laughs> yeah, but I'm Physical like, old lady. okay, I see how it is now. It is it is different. It's a much more serious venture, that's for sure. So, yeah, this is a job. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to hear that from him. And I think he's going to be excited, you know, uh, to, to be able to, to – coach full-time and have these guys you know as professionals this is their job and you know it's it's very cutthroat but that's one I think really important jump for coaches coming from college to uh, the NFL he was asked about his what his run game offense would look like I thought we evolved into a different type of running team by the end of the season so which were ways to highlight the back that we had and the and alignment that we had which we thought were athletic in the pin pull world coupled with you know some scheme where we could work on no pull power and so I think we, we do a great job being ready to run anything honestly and you got to get good at stuff too right you can't be an inch deep and a mile wide of course but I think that our offense you know provides a lot of answers in the run game 
Can be an inch deep and a mile wide. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> well, and also the, the sort of pin pull thing. I did a football one on one thing. Um, if you if you go back and look, it's um, it was after the Washington Commanders game, and so what it was was kind of the two running styles between Charbonnet and Walker, and how Ken Walker is more of a read option. Um, now he can do both. Mm-hmm. Both guys can do both. I mean, the read, you know, sort of the. Um, you know, the zone blocking, sorry, uh, the zone blocking where, you know, you come off, that's a double team, and then one guy leaves to go up to the next. You try to get angles. And then, you know, for you, you, you think about Ken Walker and kind of the way he runs, he'll cut it back and look for, and sometimes he cuts it back and you're like, oh, don't do that. Oh, okay, that was pretty good. You're like, so, yeah, that was the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the pin and pull is just, you know, like a guard blocking down on the nose guard and the center pulling. And pretty rare to see a center pull, but. You saw uh, Jason Kelsey do that a number of times. Really good at it. That's the reason why he's one of the best centers in the league. I'm not sure if he's going to keep playing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if you go and look at that that commander's game, there were just angles on everybody. And, you know, like you had a tight end kind of trapping a linebacker, and then you got a guard pulling around. And like he said, they have really offensive or um, athletic offensive linemen there. So they're able to, to get that done. You kind of have to have that. Phil Haynes comes to mind. Right. He's a great pulling guard. Um, so, yeah. And then they're, you know, it's not like he, he's just going to have that. But watching one of those plays come together is one of my favorite things even though it's an offensive play, when you see everybody is, there's a jersey on a jersey, everybody is blocked up, and it just opens up like the Red Sea. And you you got a, you got a lane to run in for, for 12, 15 yards. Those trap plays, quick inside hitting plays are just awesome. So, you know, I, love, I liked hearing that, and I'll, I'll be very curious to see how he executes that because I thought we got away from that. You know, it was mm. much more just the zone read type of blocking most of the year. But in that Washington game, they really featured that. And Charbonnet, who's just a downhill runner, was was fantastic in well, that. He, he was asked whether his experience, because he was, he was an O-line coach, he was a quarterback coach, uh, he was asked if that's gonna something that's going to make him a more well-rounded offensive coordinator. It does. I've been really blessed in that. I mean that. I've, I've been very fortunate. Just I don't think I, I necessarily – actually, I shouldn't say I don't think. I know I didn't sit down at the beginning of my career and like, okay, this year I'm going to check this box, check this box. I went where it was needed every team I was on. And that O-line experience, nine years in that room, really formulated a lot of the success I had later as far as translation in the quarterback room, understanding protection, having a good firm grasp on the run game, but then still having the background and skill to be able to put it all together with the quarterback. So I've been really lucky that way that it helps my vision of the game. I know that people don't like Kalen DeBoer, but he had you know, the the old phrase is a meteoric rise. I mean, he, he really did. Mm-hmm. And Grubb's kind of kind of been with him. He's the, the same type of guy. So Kalen DeBoer, maybe people don't like him right now. I get that, but he's a really good coach. And I just I, I love hearing that from Grubb that he's, you know, coached O line, he's coached quarterbacks, he's coached everybody. So it's gonna be interesting to see how he how he puts that together and you know, it seems like uh, well, we heard it from John. Check out the big brain on Brad. <laughs> yeah. Right? By the way, I think I think everybody agrees with you that DeBoer is a good coach. Otherwise, they would have said, good riddance. Who cares if he left? There's a reason they're mad. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Know, that he's gone. Uh, Grubb went on to talk about the similarities between the wide receivers here and the ones he was working with at UW. We had three pretty good receivers at Washington, and 
We've got three pretty good ones here. So it certainly starts there with the weapons that you have at your disposal. And we had two really good young tackles and obviously experienced quarterback room. And then kind of goes into more detail about, you know, comparing the three receivers here and, and you dub. There's no question. When I was looking at, you know, who is here and, and the tools that are here at uh, Seattle, I thought that there was a lot of familiarity and what would be able to be applicable in the system. So, and I do, I think 11 here looks a little bit like 11 there. You know, those are good option route runners, guys that if you can get somebody flat-footed or a nickel or safety on those guys, they can highlight their skills. And then you got the big-bodied X and DK and Rome. And, um, but still, I think that's the thing that was amazing about Rome. And, I, and when I watch DK, I think the same thing. is like these guys are not just nine runners. These guys are crossing route. They're middle field open. They're sitting in zones. They're really versatile for big guys. And then you got the experienced route runner in the Z. Lockett can do all those things. I mean, you can move that guy about anywhere. Yeah, so he kind of uh, compared uh, McMillan to JSN and then uh, Adunze to DK. So, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. You know, again, people were talking about, well, they're more of a pass-heavy offense there, you know, and they we really want to get the run game going here. But you'd have to be insane to not throw the ball, especially when you got a guy who's a Heisman Trophy candidate yeah. with, uh, with Penix, and then you've got, Adunze, you got Polk, you got McMillan. I mean, those guys had 1640, 1159, and 559, respectively. And so, yeah, you're talking about McMillan. He had 45 catches. So, yeah, they, they threw it around a, a fair amount, but they also had a, a good running game, too, with, uh, you know, with Dylan Johnson getting over almost 1,200 yards. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be. I mean, he's got tools to work with here. Now we'll see what happens after they do whatever they need to do to to uh, massage the salary cap, if you will. To you know whether they have Tyler restructure his deal, like we've talked about, or you know what 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 it's ultimately going to look like. I would assume all three of those guys are obviously JSNs here, and I don't see DK going anywhere. The wild card would be Tyler if he were reluctant to do anything with his contract, which I would be stunned if the mm-hmm. team came to him and said you're still going to get your money but we need to transform this into bonus and now your base is just this and you know to me as a player I never understood why you would care if you're if you're still getting the same amount ultimately but we're just going to call this salary cap and we're going to or call this a bonus or this is this you know return it if you will but your base salary is going to be a million but you're still getting your money. Why do you care? I I don't know, and I don't see Tyler Lockett being a problem. And who comes to mind, unfortunately, is Jaron Reed, where yeah. they restructured his deal so that they were going to hand him a check that was his. Now, what he walked into that negotiation thinking, I'm they're going to extend Extension. my contract. Yeah. When really, what they were saying, hey, look, we'll still get to the table next year, but right now, in order to clear up room, we got to pay you. Nine <laughs> we million, have to I pay think, you right? our nine million dollars. And they took one fell swoop, and they took half of it, half of that to go to Kansas City. So, here's my point: is is that it? It just seems like he who shall not be named that runs the salary cap and doesn't like to be mentioned. <laughs> uh, but a great guy. People uh, may think I'm talking about the devil, and uh, that's not that's not the case. He so. could scare you though in the summer with his white face with all the cream he yeah. has got on his face out there. <laughs> <laughs> or who is the guy? Who is the guy from Harry Potter? Uh, for you Harry Potter readers out there, I read to my kids, he who shall not be named, shall not be named. Matt? My one nerd blind, blind spot. No Really? Idea. You yeah. don't know? Is it Voldemort? No, it was, uh, Voldemort. Thank you. Thank Good you. job. 
There well, we go. Well, let's go to our secondary Lefko. nerd, yes. Lord, Mike Lefko. Lord Voldemort. <laughs> Any kid growing up should know that. Oh, so yeah. Your kids know it. I read like six or seven books to my kids, that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, he doesn't like to be mentioned, so we won't we won't mention his name. Matt Thomas, no. uh, but Matt, <laughs> Matt, and uh, and John, they always like we're always in a predicament like this. Like, yeah. how are we going to free up more cash? How are we going to get this done? And I say we, uh, but they they always find a way to get it done. You know, whether yeah. it's like the deal that they were trying to do with uh, with Jay Reed, and they always do it in a way that nobody gets angry. I mean, Jamal Adams. I remember when they were doing his deal, they were like. We're going to get to you, okay? And he trusted them. Yeah, he was out there at practice. Yeah. He was out there not participating, but he was on the sidelines and he was talking and he was out there cheering them on. So yeah, it was. They so, they do have a have a knack for making it a a. It's not there's it's not adversarial, right? It's not. Well, I'm digging my heels in, and we're not going over. Right. I mean, everybody seems to be cordial and hey, we're going to get it figured out. You yeah, know? and everybody's comfortable being there. It was the, our our big offensive tackle we got from the. T- from Houston, uh, Dwayne, oh, Dwayne Brown, uh, Dwayne Brown, yeah, same, same thing. thing. Yep, yeah. Yep. He was like, "Yeah, I trusted that they were going to get it done." And when John comes to you and says, "Look, we have to do this, but you're going to be the the next person," everybody believes him because mm-hmm. he's got a track record and he's able to do it. But yeah, I mean, I I think every time this year, now, like I said, easier said than done. Um, but it just seems like there's a cap space problem, or oh, this and that, but. You know, how are they going to get this player? They they typically get it figured out. And we'll, and we'll talk more about that coming up at 4.30 with Andrew Brandt. He'll join us, give us some insight on that. Meanwhile, in, in the world of baseball, they're, they're now calling the, the combination of Cody Bellinger, of Bellinger, Montgomery, Snell, and Chapman, the Boris Four. <laughs> Jeez. They're all they're all represented by agent Scott Boris. They Doesn't all remain, represent everybody? They all remain unsigned. So it's just you know, who's going to blink first situation. Apparently Snell's got an offer on the table from the Yankees. Uh, and I sent you this last night, the MLB rumors, according to CBS sports, uh, that the Mariners have discussed signing Matt Chapman. Now this is what they wrote. It says the Mariners have at least internally discussed the possibility of signing third baseman, Matt Chapman reports the Seattle times. He could replace uh, Gino Suarez who was traded away early in the offseason right now, Seattle has a Josh Rojas slash Luis Urias uh, platoon penciled in at the hot corner. We rank Champ Chapman as the number four free agent this offseason. 30 years old, provides power defense, uh, though his 2023 season was underwhelming. Mariners missed the postseason by one game last season. They're at a point where uh, on the win curve where every additional win they can bring in significantly improves their postseason odds. On paper, Chapman is an obvious fit for the Mariners. Mm. So I don't know if if last year is a is a red flag. He's not that. He's thirty. It's not like he's thirty six and you're you're bringing in AJ Pollock again. But yeah, it was a it was a down year for him. Certainly, he's had big years: thirty six home runs, twenty four home runs, twenty seven, twenty seven. Last year, seventeen. Uh, he's had some tremendous defensive years. I would love Chapman on this team now. At what price is that even realistic? You know, who knows? Scott Boris is asking price. But if somehow Jerry were and, and Justin were able to pull it off that they bring in Matt Chapman, you could say this is the best offseason in his tenure. If they did that, along with Polanco, along with Garver, along with with uh, you know Santos in the bullpen, along with everything they've done. Now, I understand their injury concerns with some of these guys, but considering that they took a step back financially, they were given less to work with. And if at the end of it, 
you've got everybody we just talked about, Garver, Haniger, Polanco, and then you throw in Chapman, and that's on a on a season where you had less to work with and you didn't give up any of your young pitching. Come on. You'd have to – I'd tip my tiny cap to him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess the thing I would say is like, well, what was with the whole 54% and why didn't you just say, hey, just hold on, just wait, just be patient – or yeah. what you don't tell your uh, your your spouse. Calm down. <laughs> yeah. Take it easy. You're flipping out. That's what somebody somebody said. They texted in and says, yeah, telling uh, all of us Mariner fans to calm down is like telling your wife to calm down. It's not a good thing. Yeah, it's going to be poorly received. Poorly received to your spouse. Now, um, uh, Chapman, I don't know if it's realistic. I mean, to hear that they've – I'm sure they've kicked around a few names. Like, how do we make it work with this guy? Is, is there a way we could – get this guy in here financially with what we've been given to work with, or more importantly, not been given. How do we, how do we get creative? How do we find a way to get him in here? And maybe it's not realistic, but I just, I read that, that the, you know, that was part of their MLB rumors that the Mariners are talking about it. Yeah. How, how close, how serious, who knows? I, I would still bet against it happening, but if somehow some way they made that happen, I, I, I don't know if you've had a better off season no, for Jerry, and in it coming in a year where again they were given less money to to work with than they anticipated, that that would be huge. Well, and then at the end of the year and all through December, you know, November, December, January, it just seemed very bleak, and it seemed very much like, okay, here we go again. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna go the cheaper. I wonder if um, I wonder if some of the you know the owners and and some of the GMs actually appreciate working with Boris because he he's so good that that's what I would kind of compare him to Marvin Demoff who was my agent like he always kind of pretty much got what he wanted and I think it's because he doesn't put the franchises through a bunch of BS it's just like hey I know exactly what's going on because he know knows the business so well that maybe you know maybe they actually appreciate him and hopefully he can put one over on uh, Jerry Depoto and our <laughs> ownership here and you know, find a way to, for them to to spend money. That would be big. That would be big. All right, coming up, we're going to get a good sense of the salary cap and potential free agent signings from former NFL executive Andrew Brandt. He's going to join us next year with Wyman and Bob. This is Seattle Sports on 710. Wyman and Bob. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Well, we've been talking a lot about salary cap and how do the Seahawks find the loopholes and all the all the trickery that goes on with the salary cap. And a guy that knows uh, salary cap better than most out there. In fact, I think pretty sure his first radio appearances might have been with me and my old partner, Bob Berger, back in the uh, Sporting mm. News radio days. He is with us now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. He is Andrew Brandt. Andrew, how are you, man? Doing well. Good to talk to you. Yeah, that you just mentioned... Uh blast from the past bob Berger. he and i worked together at uh wtm in washington dc i did a sports radio business and sports show there like 25 years ago andrew also you're a stanford guy is that right i am indeed yeah i uh i was there during the elway years yeah i think i was a freshman your senior year i think 82 that was the year of the play god yeah 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 
Really sucked. Dave didn't make I'm the still, tackle on the play. I'm still pissed about it. He blew it. Yeah. <laughs> I made like three tackles, yeah. Andrew. <laughs> you know, uh, my freshman roommate and one of my best friends from Stanford, he wrote a book yeah. called Four Laterals and a Trombone. Yep. Um, Tyler Bridges, yeah. You probably talked to him. Yeah, I did. And uh, uh, he actually did like a – we did an interview there for like – Three hours, uh, yeah, talking about the play and everything. But uh, some people think it's funny. I'm still pissed about it. Andrew, so. <laughs> well, me too. And I had to deal with Aaron Rodgers all those years. Oh, jeez. Um, and Ryan Longwell. And, yeah, I'm still pissed as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk salary cap, Andrew. You've got an understanding of the cap that, that very few have. And it, it, it seems it's become so complex that teams now – not only employ a capologist, if you will, somebody whose sole sole duty is to address the cap, but there are te- a number of teams that have multiple capologists that they employ to, I guess, find the loopholes, and we're gonna we're gonna turn this into a bonus and restructure this and figure out ways to manipulate the cap. Has it has it changed substantially since you were doing it? Just the ways people are finding to to create room when the when it appears on the surface they've got no room, they're over the cap. Yeah, I mean, I've always said that I think the most successful teams, and I'm biased because I would think we had this in Green Bay, are the teams that combine the three areas of football operations in harmony. And when I say in harmony, kind of everyone's on the same page. They stand by their principles. They understand this is the way we're dealing with things. And those three areas, for people who don't know, are coaching, personnel evaluation, which is scouting, and financial, cap and contract management. So in Green Bay, you know, we had a great scouting staff that included John Schneider, and we had coaches, and they kind of let me run my lane. But my job was, we're going to make it work. And we weren't a big free agent team with quick fixes and massive contracts to players outside our system. I did a lot of contracts at top of the market, but they were usually for our players Mm -hmm. that we had identified to do extensions and we worked on those this time of year to make sure they never hit free agency. But, you know, I think people have this better, certainly better understanding of the cap over the last 15, 20 years. I'd like to think, selfishly, I'm a little part of that because when I left the Packers, that was one of my goals is to sort of bring the public into behind the curtain on what really happens in managing a contracts and cap for an NFL team. And, I just sort of get to what I hear all the time, like you, because you can move things around and because you can use prorated signing bonuses, people think the cap is not really real. I think my best answer to that is if you don't care about the future, the cap is not real, right? <laughs> if, you, if you don't care about 2025 and on, you can do anything. You can do anything you want. You can make the team you want. No cap issues whatsoever. But if you care about the future, you have to manage it. And you can't just parade and push out pain and do void years and all these silly things that teams do because it will bite you. And I constantly talk to people about that. And they say, well, my team's still doing okay. Well, is it? Are they able to sign veterans? Are they able to compete? Do they have a shallow roster where they have some really good players but not much behind them? So those are the things you look at. Hey, uh, as far as the cap itself, is it kind of like the tax code that, you know, some people can 
can work it better than others or know more of the tricks. I mean, it just it seems like every year there's new things that are added to it. But uh, it I don't know. Are there are there some guys that are better than others in, in your opinion? Like over the years watching these franchises, who are some of those uh, some of those teams that really excelled as far as managing the cap? Yeah, I think so. And But I look at it as the most skilled cap managers are the ones that don't have to wrench and borrow from the future. Mm. And, you know, people think that these cap, these cap people are magicians for pushing out the cap pain and creating all this cap room. I think the real magicians are those that don't have to do that, right? Mm. Those that don't have to take a $25 million salary, make it a 20 $3 million bonus and a $2 million salary and push out that $23 million. The ones that can accept the cap and not have all these problems. Here's the thing, guys. 60 to 80% of every NFL roster are cost-controlled players. And when I say cost-controlled, they're in their rookie contracts or very close to it. So they're years one, two, three, or four, or even five. That's, that's 60 to 80% of every roster. So the cumulative cap number for that group is probably, I don't know, 40 to $60 million. So you basically have almost $200 million for 20% of your roster, right? So that's what you're dealing with. Everything about cap management is how do we pay our stars? And it becomes easier if and when you have young players performing. You know, my old team, the Packers, were saddled with a $42 million charge this year for a guy named Aaron Rodgers, who was playing for the New York Jets. What did they have? They had the youngest team in the league performing at an extremely high level. You can do it. You can be very successful if your young players are performing, no matter what cap room you have. So, again, it's all in conjunction, scouting, coaching, and cap. Looking at the Seahawks, Andrew, I don't know how closely you've looked at their cap situation, but uh, you know, depending on where you look, uh, you look at Spotrac or over the cap, they're over the cap, and they've certainly got a number of holes to fill. And you start looking at guys that you you could release, and and you know you want to do minimal damage in the way of dead cap. But how would you? Jamal Adams seems to be the one that everybody points to is you know he's making a lot of money, he's not playing, hasn't been healthy. Yet he's, according to Spotrac, has almost $21 million in dead cap attached to him. How do, you, how do you handle something like that? Well, these are the meetings that go on this time of year. You know, do you want to do an outright release and take on that big dead money charge? Do you want to work towards a pay reduction, um, which are not easy, of course, when you go to veterans that have contributed for a long time? And these are tricky negotiations because if you're going to go to a veteran and ask for a pay cut, you better be prepared for the what else or else, because if you say, yeah, we need this much off and he says, no, you can't just say my bad. You've got to either cut them or say that, you know, it's, it's, you can look out at the market and see if you can make more, but we're going to give you a couple of days to do that. Um, no, I haven't studied the Seahawks cap in, in, you know, we always go to the quarterback. I did see the news about Gino being brought back, and I thought that was a reasonable number, even including the bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, you get any level of productive quarterback at a number in the 20 to 30 range, you know, you're doing well. As far as agents go, Andrew, we were just talking about uh, Scott Boris and Major League Baseball and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just all the number of players that, that he had. But also, you know, with um, with Demoff, Marvin Demoff, he was my agent. And I just I feel like he always got a little bit more than I deserved. <laughs> and, you know, as far as uh, dealing with uh, with those types of guys, is a guy like Marvin, for example, I mean, is he one of those guys that knows the the business enough that you're not going to be annoyed by him constantly asking for um, for more money? Is that yeah? Is that kind of the case with with a guy like that? Yeah, and I don't know if you know, but my background before switching to the team side, I was an agent for many years, and and the one thing I'll say is, you know, Marvin was a great one. Uh, I always knew I was in for a challenge, but I always knew it would be a high-level conversation. Um, I get frustrated dealing with uh, some of the inexperienced agents because you almost felt like you were negotiating both sides where you had to bring them along and teach them things. And I will say this about agents and cap because I can't count the number of times agents would say to me, hey, Andrew, I can make it cap friendly. Mm Mm-hmm. I would really, I would really clap back because my my standard line was, "Hey, hey, stop! You worry about your player. I'll worry about our cap. Don't tell me about our cap, because when you say cap friendly, that really means cap unfriendly later. Yeah. So I didn't really want to deal with. Stuff. Everyone's got that line already teed up, and I sort of shut that down. <laughs> He's the former Packers vice president of player finance, now writing for Monday Morning Quarterback and hosts the Business of Sports podcast. Andrew Brandt has been our guest here with Wyman and Bob. Andrew, good to talk to you again. Thanks so much for cutting out time for us. We appreciate it. Always, guys. A couple of people asked about the newsletter. So you just go to andrew-brandt.com. I send you my thoughts and insights every weekend. Hope you enjoy it. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Bye, guys. There you go. Andrew Brandt. Uh, good to talk to him. Meanwhile, one free agency decision could have big ramifications for the rest of the NFL. We're going to hear about that when we sweep the dial. Coming up with Wyman and Bob, this is Seattle Sports on 710. Scanning the airwaves for the most interesting and entertaining stories of the day. Sweeping the dial. Every afternoon at 445 with Wyman and Bob. We've been talking about some internal Seahawks free agents, and there could be a big name on the defensive side on the open market, at least uh, according to Jeff Darlington, who on Get Up This Morning had an interesting idea for the Chiefs. If the Bucks can't lock him up and he does commit to going elsewhere, the Kansas City Chiefs should absolutely be per- pursuing Mike Evans. I understand the dynasty that is the Chiefs. I talked about how they can morph into many different things, but we should not forget the middle of the season. We should not forget the league-leading number of drops that the Chiefs face. I don't know that it is sustainable to do what they did in this postseason. They've got to go get weapons, and Mike Evans should be absolutely at the top of their list. He would be a game-changer for Patrick Mahomes. Jeff, what would not be sustainable in that scenario is their salary cap. they got to take care of Chris Jones, Legereus Sneed. Oh, by the way, their left tackle, Donovan Smith, before we get to Mike Evans. But think about it. I would rather Mike Evans than Chris Jones. I would rather Mike Evans in this offense than Chris Jones on this defense. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that argument and just say that number one, you have Spagnolo, who is a genius uh, defensive coordinator. You did have an inordinate number of drops. Uh, they were worst mm-hmm. in the NFL, I believe. Yeah. Um, Kansas City, as far as drop passes. And then the other thing is, I sent you guys that, uh, I don't know if you saw that video from the Super Bowl, Mike Pinnell. Uh, he crushes Trent Williams. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you, I said that to you guys, I was like, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. I mean, he, Trent Williams is a beat. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. And he had a bad moment. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> he got but, off balance. But he, yeah, a little bit. But that guy, holy smokes, man. It was it was pretty impressive. So you have some, you know, good defensive linemen that can kind of do what Chris Jones does well. Um, I, so you take Evans over Jones? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the whole thing is going to work out. But I like that, that way of thinking because it's pretty odd that really – only the tight end, Kelsey, is is really that's his main target. And yeah, you, and he never drops the ball. Yeah, it's I. It I sounds mean, crazy on the surface because Jones was such a presence in the Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean that final play that Purdy had a, a receiver that was going to be wide open, but he had to rush his throw or take the sack because Jones. Now he did come unblocked. That certainly helps. <laughs> but yeah, he, I, he was just such a monster in that game, and that's the recency bias. Like, they won a Super Bowl, and you could point to him being a, a major reason why. Well, I'll be honest. When I saw Chris Jones' name, I was like, I hope he's speculating that the Seahawks yeah. get him because uh, he's so good. But, I mean, you look at at Mahomes and all the talk about him and versus Brady, and is he the greatest of all time? We think it's a little bit early, but holy moly. I mean, that's your whole team right there. And Mike Evans would uh, go a long way to repairing that whole drop passes problem they had last year. Sweeping the dial. Now, Rick Pitino's in his first year coaching St. John's, and it's not going well. They blew a 19-point lead on Sunday, and he blamed everyone but himself for the terrible coaching job that he's doing this season. It's really that all the toughness things of why we give up leads. We are so non-athletic that we can't guard anybody without fouling, and really it's not about losing, because even in winning, winning when we watch the film, I see unathletic plays, I I see people that don't handle the ball, that's just interested in taking quick shots. So it's been a disappointing year. If you had to do it over again, would you have attacked your first offseason differently? I had no choice. We just could take who we could get, who was available. We had no choice. Um, I don't think we were going to win the first year anyway, because when you rush like that and you don't see the players and you just not not a whole lot we can do. But it's um, I think I've enjoyed even even the Celtics when we lost. I've enjoyed every minute being a Boston Celtic coach. Didn't like the fact that we lost in that following year, but this has been the most unenjoyable experience I've had since I've been coaching. Goodness gracious. I think if you're a player on that team and you heard him go, we had no choice. We had to take what we had. And if you're one of those players, aren't you just feeling like a crumb? I would rather, I think players would rather be called lazy and, you know, no no effort than unathletic. Unathletic. And we, we only use you because you were here yeah and then afterwards uh, by the way he's like oh i wasn't ripping them you use the I word been, ripping i, I wasn't ripping you're calling them unathletic rick so Jeez. yeah i don't again i mean i go back to the chuck knox thing like you go hey that's on me i'll i'll fix it and you do it behind 
behind the lines. I don't know. He's a pretty good coach. Maybe he thinks that these guys need to hear that. Maybe that's a new technique or whatever. But it's been most unenjoyable coaching. I've done unathletic. In my life. We're so unathletic. We have to foul people when oh we guard goodness. them. Sweeping the dial. We heard the comments from Anthony Rendon earlier. Now uh, contrast this here. Complete 180 for Mike Trout, who has been through it all at the Angels. And he says, you know, I'm not going to ask to be traded. I'm in it with them for the long haul. I think the biggest thing right now is I think the easy way out is just ask for a trade. There might be a time, maybe. Uh, I really haven't thought about this. But, you know, when I signed that contract, I, I'm loyal. You know, I want to win the championship here. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's mainly. I think the, the, the overall picture of winning a championship or getting to the playoffs here is bigger satisfaction, bailing out and just taking the easy way out. So I think that's, that's why it's been my mindset. Maybe down the road if something's changed, but that's been my mindset ever since the trade speculations, you know, came up. So that's where I'm at. Good for him. I mean, I give him credit. It's a shame you feel like this guy's going to end his career and never, never win a ring. He's 32 years old, so he's not old. He's been with the – this is his 14th season he's going to be going into. I can't believe that. And he's been injury-prone the last few. I mean, he did play 119 games in 2020. It's amazing what he did in that year. He only played 119 games. He hit 40 home runs in 119 games. So he missed, what, 43 games? Yeah. I mean, and he still hit 40. You know, uh, he's – I mean, he's just been a ridiculous player, a generational talent. But last year he played 82 in 21, he played 36 games in 20. Obviously, that was a short season. So you hope he gets healthy because if you're just a baseball fan, I know he's in the division with the Mariners, but watching him play everybody else, he's one of those guys you tune in to watch. And I, I respect that sort of loyalty to a team that just feels like they're not going to be good anytime soon. Maybe that quote from him will offset Anthony Rendon for the uh, <laughs> Angels fans. <laughs> yeah, how are Angels fans feeling about Rendon? Is he going to get booed when he steps up to the plate? They're going to. It'd be funny if everybody got up and went and got snacks or yeah. a beer or whatever. Jeez. All right. Sweeping the dial is powered by Seattle University men's basketball. Coming up, we'll see what he thought of the NBA All-Star game because you know El Hombre was parked in front of the TV watching every moment of that. Uh, he's going to join us next with Wyman and Bob. This is Seattle Sports on 710.